Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Well, today we will continue our verse-by-verse study of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 8, we'll pick up today in verse 15, uh, making our way through the book of Romans and specifically chapter 8. We will not finish chapter 8 today. This is a three-week study through Romans chapter 8. It is that uh, important of a chapter. And so... um, We'll pick back up by way of review this morning in verses 15 through 17. As you're turning there, I'll share with you a quote uh, that I read this week from John Newton. John Newton, in his book, Amazing Grace, writes this. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Certainly, I think we would all agree saying, pull yourself together, man. You are but a mile away from a tremendous inheritance. Everything is going to be okay. Well, as you might expect, In similar fashion, Christian, what we must realize this morning is that within this book is described for us an inheritance, a future that promises a place with no more death, no more disease, no tears, no pain, no suffering, no sadness, a place free from corruption and sin, no more darkness. A place where you'll see loved ones who have gone before you. Where you will find perfect rest and contentment. Where you yourself will be perfected. Spiritually sound. Physically sound. A new mind. A new body. With a new character. You will have all that you need. You will be in the presence of God. And you will serve Him and rule with Him in His kingdom. In a new heaven and a new earth. You will feast on the greatest of food and will forever be contented by what God has for you. This is what is in store for you, Christian. In the the perspective of eternity, you are but a mile away. Yet sadly, so often we are walking along blubbering about our carriage being broken, as it were. When in fact, we've already been given everything we could ever need. We just have yet to take full possession of it. Christian, do you know what you have this morning? Do you know what is promised to you? When we sing like we did this morning of hope, is it truly hope to you? Do you know what it is that you are hoping in? Is Jesus truly that hope? You see, we we live in an in-between time. That place between Christ's work upon the cross and our eventual glory. And this time is marked with much difficulty. But it does not mean that our inheritance is no more. Rather, we are challenged to have a proper perspective. To see things as they are. 
and to realize that our eventual glorification should bring hope for today. This is Paul's message to us as we resume our study this morning. As we began Romans 8 last week, making our way as far as verse 17, we found that in Christ we have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is with you before salvation, drawing you unto repentance. The Holy Spirit that is in you, that seals you upon salvation. The Holy Spirit that comes upon you to empower you and equip you for life in Christ. This Holy Spirit within every believer gives us, as we considered last week, a new mindset, a new way of thinking. We're given a new sense of life. We're given new priorities and even a new identity. Our lives are changed. We read in verses 15 through 17, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. You see, no longer must we fear. No longer are we condemned. We have been delivered from the law. We are now under grace and we have been adopted. We are children of God. We have the privilege of a close relationship with Him as our sins have been removed. But as we began to consider last week, verse 17 concludes with the following, If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. You see, what we must recognize is that being a child of God does not mean that we are free from trials and suffering in this life. Anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. Paul here is honest about the in-between time in which we now live. And contrary to the peddlers of the prosperity gospel, we as believers will face trials in this life. Not only that, but we must recognize that everyone suffers in this life, saved and unsaved, because this is a fallen world. But for believers who stand with Christ and stand for righteousness, there is promised persecution. We must be honest about this. And so it makes sense for us for a moment here this morning to just consider this verse in a little bit more detail and to look at what does it mean to suffer with or for Christ. First of all, again, there is suffering in this life because it is a fallen world. And we serve a God who knows. We serve a God who experienced that suffering. And so He does not make light of the suffering that we experience because of this fallen world. No, He meets us in it, understands it. But Jesus Himself said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And as Paul will share, all of creation has been subjected to futility because of the fall. It's simply part of this life. Secondly, what we must understand about suffering is that suffering for or with Christ does not include suffering that is because of your own sin. Peter writes in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 20, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? 
But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Later, Peter would write in chapter 4, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. See, the fact of the matter is, if we make stupid decisions and we experience the consequence of those decisions, that is not suffering with Christ. That is suffering for your own dumb decisions. Now, here's, here's the wonderful thing about God's grace and His mercy. is that He is with you in that. And He will see you through it. And yes, you can cry out to God and you can say, God, I screwed up. Would you fix this, Lord? And He will. And He'll work in your life. As a good father, He'll desire to see you learn from these things. But this is not suffering for Christ. Furthermore, if, if you, Christian, fancy yourself to be the one who's persecuted in the workplace, but it's purely a result of your self-righteous efforts to condemn others in their sin, you're not being persecuted. You're just being a jerk. This is why we're called to show grace and mercy, to, to love people where they're at, to love them out of their sin, not to go around pointing everything out. So what does it mean to suffer with Him? Well, how did He suffer? Did he suffer physically? Yes, he did. Did he suffer emotionally? Yes, he did. Did he suffer in a way spiritually? Yes, he did. Paul writes of suffering often, of his own ministry. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments in tumults, and labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul, in effect, says there is suffering in a multitude of ways. And listen, for any one of you who takes a stand for Christ, perhaps you endure the great difficulty that is being mopped publicly for your faith, or to the lesser seen personal sacrifice and pain of loving someone who is hard to love and takes much from you, there is suffering in all of this. And the reality is that we are called to it. The Christian life is not intended to be free from this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What a verse. It's been granted to you the opportunity to suffer. It's not something we long for, is it? That we look forward to, but it's part of this life. In fact, the disciples themselves declared it as recorded in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, where we read, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus may suffer persecution if they feel so inclined. Is that what it says? No, it says, will suffer. Finally, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you 
as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. You might be thinking, man, this is an encouraging message this morning. This was what I was hoping we'd cover. Let's talk about suffering, right? But you see, this is the point. This is the point of what Paul is getting at. Helping us to understand as, as we understand from multiple Scriptures that suffering is part of this life. And so then, what do we do about it? What do we do with it? You might think it's strange to rejoice in something like this. However, what Peter writes following this brings perspective. If you continue on in the latter part of verse 13, Peter says that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Well, we can read this differently by just a slight nuance to say, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering so that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad. You see, what Peter mentions here is what Paul deals with in the following verses and what serves as a great encouragement for Christians enduring trials today is that the promise of future glory brings hope today. Continuing on in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here's the reality, Christian. We will suffer currently. This is the way that it is, but the promise of future glory should provide us with proper perspective. The sufferings of this present time. And and for Paul, this was real suffering. Paul was not a guy who could say, well, you know what? The suffering that we're going through right now uh, just isn't that bad. And we look at him and say, well, you've you've lived this charm life. You haven't gone through anything, Paul. It's easy for you to say, no, that was not Paul. Paul tells us just even a little bit of his suffering. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, beginning of verse 23, Paul writes, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. In deaths often? Yeah, we're talking about a guy here who died. And then the Lord said, not yet. And he comes back and he keeps on doing ministry. A guy who you would say, you could probably take a break right now. You could just chill for a little while. Go ahead and retire. And he says, no, I'm going back in. Wait, but they killed you. They stoned you in there. They brought you out and left you for dead. i got to go back. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Anybody gets on a boat with Paul? (laughs) He's got to be thinking, man. Let's keep this one afloat, shall we? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst, fasting often, in cold and nakedness. I mean, what he lists here, very few of us, if any of us, could ever even say we've experienced a portion of this. Yet Paul says this is not to be compared to what will be revealed in us. Stated differently, your heavenly inheritance outweighs any amount of suffering in this life. It's worth it every time. Teresa of Avila, the Spanish nun from the 1500s, I saw this quote earlier this week, said, in light of heaven... The worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Put some things in perspective. Paul states elsewhere in similar fashion, writing in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, 
verses 17 and 18, stating, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. Look around for a moment. Think about your life. Think about the circumstances that you're facing and the things that are, that are uh, proving to be a trial for you. Those, those things that are, yes, real, and they're there, and you can see them, but know that they're temporary. Or the things that you put your trust in or the things that you're hoping in, these things that you have possession of are once again temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Yet we must recognize suffering in the present does not always feel light and momentary. It often feels quite heavy. But this is why Paul says, in effect, glory is coming. He continues on, praise God, and in, in, in his own understanding and in his led of the Spirit, I believe, willing to recognize that, that this is hard, that life this side of heaven can often be hard. And so he seeks to encourage us as we continue on in verses 19 through 22. He says even creation itself is crying out. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Folks, creation itself the earth and all that is in it, God allowed to be affected by the fall of man. And since that time, it too is groaning, quite literally, in earthquakes and various natural disasters and famines and fires. This earth, as we see it, and we could often say, man, this place has fallen apart. And in fact, it's groaning. It's crying out for redemption. Groaning for what is to come knowing that when we are glorified, when we come into our glory, all of creation is next. J.B. Phillips translates this passage in the following way, stating the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality, not because it chooses to be blind, but because God, in God's purpose, it has been so limited. Yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end, the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. Eagerly waiting, on tiptoe. Remember when you were a kid too short maybe to see over the counter? In the kitchen, your mom was making cookies or something, and you're just like, what is up there? It seems good. I want it. I've been told not yet, but I just want to see. I want to know. Or maybe you were like me, and somebody was coming to the house, and you're thinking, man, I, you just couldn't leave the window. You're just so eager waiting. When are they going to arrive? When are they going to arrive? You see, we are called. Creation is functioning in this way as Paul personifies creation, saying it's on its tiptoes, eager for what's ahead. But are you? Christian, are you just as eager? Do you find yourself sort of agonizing over and, and, and longing for and groaning in and, and ways in which you can't even necessarily put words to it, but just thinking, man, I just want Jesus. 
I want what's ahead? Or are you perfectly content with what is here now? The things that will pass away and that are temporary. See, Paul says in verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning that we are special, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that when Jesus said, I must go so that the Holy Spirit, the helper can come and indwell you and equip you and empower you and work in your life and be able to give you a peace which surpasses all understanding that when you're going through a difficult time, you can just sort of sit back and go, I'm actually okay. And people will say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you can say, well, it's the Holy Spirit within me. Or when you say, I need to pray about it, to seek the Lord for wisdom, and His Word comes alive to you in ways that it doesn't to other people because you've got the Holy Spirit. This is a privilege. This is a blessing. And it's the first fruits. It means that God says, here, look, I'm going to give you this. And it's just a, it's a down payment on what's to come. And so any amount that you've ever experienced, God and the power of the Spirit working in your life, you can rest assured, pales in comparison to what's ahead. And that should excite you. He says you have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting. Are you eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body? And you might say, haven't we already been adopted? Isn't that what Romans says? Yes. Yes, you have. But all the benefits have yet to be fully realized. We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, His presence within us that sealed us, the down payment as I've spoken to of what is to come, but it has not been fully realized. And, and this is true. I mean, truly, as we look at the, 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 the picture of adoption, in the case of many adoptions, part of the adoption process is that the adoption itself is completed. It's formalized before the adoptive parents are, are able to even come for their new son or daughter. You see, the status of that child is changed from orphan to adopted. And then they begin the waiting period for their parent to come. In like manner, we've been adopted. We're children of God, and we're waiting for Him to come. Waiting patiently for our future hope. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. This is what it's about. He says, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's what hope is. Hope is always future-oriented. We do not hope in or for what we already have. So inherent within hope is a patient waiting and trust. What are we hoping in? Truly, Christian, what are you hoping in? We say, you know the right answer. You say, well, I'm hoping in Jesus. Well, what about exactly? What about him? Are you hoping that he makes this life now a little better? I mean, think about it. When we, when, we, when we talk about Jesus and what Jesus has done, much of what we often think about is, is, is the truth of the gospel, and at least a portion of the gospel, much of which has already happened. Are you hoping that he's going to cover your sins? Done. Are you hoping that he's going to give you everything you need for life and godliness this side of heaven? Done. Are you hoping that he's going to accomplish some salvation work so that you can be promised the eternity in heaven? It's done. These things you need not hope in, they are completed. You trust in them, and it has become yours. So what are you hoping in? The answer is heaven, future glory. But yet we spend so much time as Christians thinking about, Lord, get me through right now. Do this in my life now. Change these circumstances now. Why? So I can be more comfortable now? So that I can be free from trial and suffering now? Why? So that I can just live the good life now. So that I can have heaven now. No. 
In fact, and we'll consider this more next week, He oftentimes will allow suffering in your life so that you stop doing that. Lord, spare me from this suffering. No. Well, that sounds mean, God. No, I'm actually very wise and very good and care a whole lot about you and have a whole lot of promises in store for you and I want you to experience them. So this hurts me more than it hurts you. You've heard that before too, right? But th- this, is, this is how it goes. This is, this is the process. We are to be hoping in glory so that when we face these circumstances now, we can say, man, Lord, this is really hard, but I know you're at work and I know you're doing these things and this is making me depend on you even more and making me long for you even more. And by golly, Maranatha, the Lord Jesus, come. Because I have officially arrived at a place where I'm done with all this. And it's as if God says, there you go. Because what I have for you is so much better. Glory, being with him, heaven, that is our hope. And I realize that in this room is varying degrees of excitement about what is to come. And generally, amongst those of you that are a little bit younger, you're a little more hesitant thinking, I don't know about this. And talk of heaven maybe scares me a little bit. And I understand because I was there myself. But I can tell you, the more you live this life, this side of heaven, the more you go, man, I want you, Jesus. And not this. And that's not to create a sense of disappointment or despair, but just to say that what God has for you is that much better. Yes, there's blessings in this life. No doubt about it. Because this is still his creation. And so it has so much of him in it. But it's just a dim mirror, a reflection of the real thing. Looking forward to what he has for us. Your heavenly inheritance Yet as I've stated so often, we spend such little time thinking on these things and so, so much so that we begin to think oftentimes that this life is all we have or that it's all we're meant for. And God's people must have eternal perspective and, not, and a not of this world mentality. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 tells us, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because we're not meant for this earth. Now, most of you in this room, if you were going to go somewhere, if you were going on a trip, no matter how spontaneous some of you may fancy yourselves to be, you would generally like to have somewhat of an idea of where you're going, what you're going to experience, what are you going to do there. You might say, I don't need to have a schedule, but what can we do? You know, what are the options, Right? I think that's generally pretty reasonable, and some of you free spirits are, you know, a little different than I am. But nevertheless, I think that most of us would, would want to go, yeah, what, what, where is it that we're going? What are we going to do? What are we going to experience? You are going to go somewhere at the end of this life, whatever time that is, whenever the Lord should call you home, you're going to go somewhere, and you're going to spend eternity there. Can anybody tell me how long eternity is? <laughs> I Think about it. However old you are right now seems like a long time. And it's like literally nothing compared to eternity. To think about eternity makes my head hurt. To just try and like, how do I comprehend that? It's forever. That's what eternity is, forever. Do you know anything about it? Do you know where you're going? Foundationally, do you know, am I going to heaven? And from there, am I familiar with this place? Because let me tell you, especially for those of you that have misconceptions and find yourself thinking like, I don't know about this whole heaven thing. You are not going to be a chubby little baby in a diaper playing a harp. You're not going to just float around and sing, right? The, 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 the way in which heaven has often been described to so many of us, oftentimes too through artwork, is so false. What he has in store, he says, is beyond what we can even comprehend. It's so good. 
And, and while, yes, reading Revelation, that first reading can, can seem even perhaps more confusing. We should study. We should learn. This, the Bible has much to say about where we will spend eternity. We can't even begin to get into it today. Go back and listen to the study on Revelation. Listen to the study through Daniel. But just a little bit even that, that John saw when he was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. There's going to be a new city. There won't be a temple there because God Himself will be there. We will worship in His presence. Elsewhere he says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city and the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. He talks about walls and, and gates and, and even in the foundations, the stones that were used. He says the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. These are the things you go to the jewelry store for and you pay a lot of money. And yet these are the foundations of this new city. He says he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We're talking rivers and foundations and streets of gold and, 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 and bountiful trees. And, and all of this once again may cause you to go, man, I can't even quite comprehend it. And that's okay. Because you can say, Lord, whatever this is, it's beyond what I've even seen or known. And your word tells me that it's real. Your word gives me measurements. This is a place that we will go. But this is hard, isn't it? Waiting, trusting, believing. And as we hope, sometimes perhaps maybe you wonder, is what I'm hoping for, is that the right thing? And maybe we get distracted by things here on earth and we start to set our sights on, on, on things that we need and even hope for, the stuff that's just there that we can have, but it's temporary. Or, or maybe you face a trial and suffering as we've considered and creation is long and groaning and so are you. But, but, but as you continue to struggle through this, maybe as you cry out, you find yourself saying, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm in the middle of this trial and I know that, Lord, the knowledge of uh, a future glory is, to, is supposed to help me to get through this time, but I'm struggling. I'm weak. And maybe you find yourself saying, how am I supposed to pray? And, and Lord, what is your will in this situation? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And Paul reminds us then of another amazing truth here that just as creation and we too are groaning, crying out, so is the Holy Spirit within us. He says in verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you ever feel weak? Do you ever feel like, as a Christian, I know I'm supposed to be letting, once again, the promise of future glory outweigh my present desires or suffering, but I'm struggling? 
And maybe now you're faced with this temptation or you're faced with a sickness or you're faced with a relationship issue and maybe you're thinking, God, am I supposed to be praying that you'd give me endurance and, and get me through this and help me to learn or should I be praying just heal me and take this disease from me and just fix it? Maybe you're asking, what's your plan, God, in all of this suffering? Do you ever feel this way? Is this resonating with anybody? You see, Paul in Philippians in chapter 1, verses 21 through 24 says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said, to be here in this life, to live, is to continue to serve Christ and to die is to be in his presence. And so he says, verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. It will be good. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul himself saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I want and I don't know what God's plan is. Or when Paul sought the Lord for healing in his own life. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10, he said, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul said, Take this from me. And God said, No. My grace is sufficient for you. Strength made perfect in weakness. And so what we must consider when we look at this and consider also how Paul is encouraging us in this passage is how did Paul arrive at these conclusions? How did Paul arrive at a place where he said, okay, well, I, I take pleasure then in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. How did, he, how did he arrive at these conclusions when he seemingly did not know how to pray or seemed to pray contrary to what God's will was? by the Spirit who is within us interceding for us. And you see, Christian, the Spirit is also at work on your behalf. Verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, look, the God who searches and knows your heart and understands that sometimes you just don't know what to do as you're navigating the difficulty of life this side of heaven, and you don't know how to pray, he is praying. He is making intercession for you according to the will of God, such that when Scripture says he will give you the desires of your heart, that's not you just saying, oh, I want a new Mustang, and here you go. God doesn't operate that way, and that desire of your heart's probably wrong. No, when he is interceding in ways that you don't know how to pray and interceding according to the will of God and giving you the desires of your heart, he's giving you those desires. He's putting those desires there. He's saying, no, Brennan, this is what you want. This is what you need. This is how you need to see this situation. He's making intercession for you. And do you have any idea how encouraging that should be for us? Listen, when we pray, the amazing supernatural work that is prayer accomplished by Jesus and His work upon the cross, that veil being torn, gives us access as Christians into the throne room of heaven. We can boldly approach His throne of grace in our time of need because we've been given access. Jesus has done that. And when we pray, we pray to God the Father on the merits of Jesus the Son in and through the Holy Spirit. That's how that process is working. And that same process process that we employ as we're praying is happening when we don't even know it that the holy spirit within us is interceding in our behalf through and on the merits of the son jesus christ jesus himself seated at the right hand of the father praying praying for you 
I shared this with the youth at the youth conference in hopes that it would encourage them in their life and their prayer life. Do you have any idea how stinking invincible we should feel when we grasp that truth? And that when you go day to day struggling in some of the sufferings that you can take a step back and we're not going to get here today. We're going to wrap up here right now. We'll get here further next week. But a little bit of a teaser here that, that, that Paul now, he's, he's building, right? He's, he's building to these next statements that we're going to consider next Sunday to where he says, so he says, look, and I'm paraphrasing now, all this stuff, all these hardships, everything that's going on in your life, you're not alone. Others are going through it too, but more than that, you, the Spirit is in you and with you and praying for you. And God, because He is so amazing and so gracious and so sovereign, so powerful and above all things, is taking all this stuff for those of you that love Him and He's working it together. And He's going to bring good out of it. And it's going to be His greatest good for you. And because of that then, do you know that there's nothing, no one can condemn you no one can separate you. Nothing. Nobody. He's got you. You're good. And because of that, you're more than a conqueror. The most victorious person that you can ever imagine, you're better. Do we get that? Do we allow that truth to transform our hearts and our minds? Because we can walk out of here today. You guys can walk out of this church and you can walk out with your chest puffed out saying, man, nothing can get me. Nothing. He's got me. My Father, who has adopted me, who has promised me an inheritance beyond my comprehension, He's got me. Amen? We've been adopted. We are children of God, but with that comes suffering in this life. Now, if we want Jesus and we want all that He has, it's the full package. And so it comes with suffering. His suffering becomes our suffering, and that is actually a privilege but it's hard, we know, suffering is not easy, but the difficulty of suffering is not to be compared to what is in store for us. Future glory wins out every time. So as we live this life, if we keep heaven in view, we'll find along with the rest of creation that we are groaning, longing for what is to come. And at times when we're weak and overwhelmed, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit is helping in our weakness. And so then, Christian, as John Newton described in the beginning, you may be walking right now. You may be finding yourself on a path that you did not expect, forced to walk by a broken down carriage as it were, but remember, you've got but a mile to go. So stick with it, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for your word and our time together here this morning. We pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you and that it will bear much fruit in each of us. And Lord, if you might, Lord, with willing hearts here today, say, Lord, do whatever you need to do in our lives to cause us, Lord, to be a people who trust you, who look to you, who anticipate, Lord, the future glory that awaits us, that we would be more, far more motivated, Lord, by what you have in store for us, not even knowing fully what it is than what we would be, Lord, drawn to the things of this world. Lord, help us to be a people who think more on heaven, who think more on glory, who think more on you, than the difficulties of the journey along the way. Help us to keep our heads up, our eyes and our hearts fixed on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.